in uh, medieval Europe, the Roman Catholic Church had really an iron grip on all matters pertaining to spiritual life. The papacy controlled access to Scripture and thus to God. The priests granted forgiveness and bestowed blessing upon whomever they deemed worthy of such things. By the 15th century, the Roman Catholic Church had become overrun with layer upon layer of institutional corruption behind a thin veil of piety, immorality, and wickedness permeated the church. Throughout Christendom, the majority of church parishioners struggled to make ends meet while the religious ruling class took advantage of the people's ignorance to fill and line their pockets and expand their papal authority. Popes and archbishops lived reprobate lives and of lavish excess, drunkenness, sexual perversion. Under Pope Leo X, the medieval church used the sale of indulgences to build elaborate structures. Uh, one in particular was St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Indulgences were a means for Roman Catholics to buy their way out of purgatory. Uh, and they could even buy their loved ones or purchase a shorter time in purgatory for their dead loved ones. Purgatory is uh, <laughs> it's a make-believe place, but it's supposed to be a place or state of suffering inhabited by the souls of sinners who are expiating their sins before going to heaven. In other words, purgatory is a place of purging where, you know, where when we die, we have to go into this holding place so that the rest and remainder of our sins are dealt with. So basically, purgatory is an attack on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross where He has dealt with our sins once and for all. So they would sell these indulgences so that people could shorten their time in purgatory, maybe avoid it altogether. Uh, the papacy's leading salesman of these indulgences was a guy named Tetzel. And he would literally go from village to village and he would terrify the impoverished peasants by telling them that if they didn't buy his indulgences, they would spend eons and eons in purgatory and potentially never even make it to heaven. This was literally his sales pitch. And, and during his sales pitches, he would, he would literally shout, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That was his big catchy sale, uh, sales pitch. And since the mortality rate was very high and life expectancy was very short, most people in that day would leap at an opportunity to avoid languishing in purgatory. They would do anything to buy, their, to buy themselves out of it. Even these people who had literally almost no money at all. And at this time, a German monk named Martin Luther became outraged as he witnessed this corruption throughout the papacy and the exploitation of peasants throughout Europe, especially in the community that he served. He just became an outraged over this. I think Tetzel visited his village and it just infuriated him. In 1517, Luther reached his boiling point and he took action. He wrote his 95 Thesis. How many of you have heard of the 95 Theses? We've actually provided you with a copy of it on the back table back there if you want to take a look at it. It's a modern-day translation, but it still makes all the points. He wrote his 95 Thesis in 1517, and on October 31st, he nailed it to the door of the church or the castle church in Wittenberg, and that is what the interior of it looks like today. That is actually the castle church at Wittenberg. The 95 Thesis was, Theses was basically a, a call for the papacy to abandon the sale of indulgences and stop using and abusing the, the destitute for their financial gain. I mean, it is a theological paper. There are some things in there. I think the third thesis says something to the effect of only God can forgive sins, not priests. So there is some theology in it. 
but for the most part, it's a theological attack on indulgences. In Thesis 86, Luther fired a, a verbal arrow at Pope Leo himself when he wrote, Why doesn't the Pope, whose wealth is greater than that of Crassus, Crassus was a huge financial supporter of Julius Caesar. Why doesn't the Pope, whose wealth is greater than that of Crassus, build the Basilica of St. Peter with his own money rather than the money from poor believers? So in Thesis 86, that's what Luther writes. That is a shot right at the Pope. Now, the, the 95 Theses angered the papacy, no doubt, but it was... Luther's later writings and his consistent call to repentance and reformation that actually caused the papacy to become unhinged and launch a counter-reformation in 1545. About a hundred years later, pastors within the Anglican Church of England began to call for the hierarchy of, of the Anglican Church to purify itself from its remaining Roman Catholic influences and practices. These pastors repeatedly called for the churches in England and throughout England to, to repent and reform. Very similar to what, what Luther had done a hundred years earlier. Repent and reform. And yet the Anglican Church refused to repent and reform, and it began to call them by the spurious title Puritans. You've heard of the Puritans. Puritans, a Puritan, Puritans is a, is a derogatory term. Uh, just as uh, when people were started to be called Christians prior to this, that was a derogatory term. The church, instead of repenting and reforming, it called them Puritans. It started to call them Puritans, and it began to persecute them relentlessly. MacArthur wrote, for decades, the Puritans faced hostility and persecution from church leaders and political rulers alike. Many suffered and died for their faith, while many more endured imprisonment and torture for the sake of Christ. The persecution reached a crescendo in 1662 when the English Parliament issued the Act of Uniformity. How many of you are familiar with the Act of Uniformity? If you have studied world history, maybe back in high school, which was, for some of us, eons ago, Bruce, um, you would have studied or at least analyzed this Act of Uniformity. You would have been made aware of it. And this decree essentially outlawed anything other than strict Anglican doctrine and practice. In other words, the, uh, the Brits basically made Anglicanism the statewide religion that said, if you practice any other form of Christianity than this, you're going to be in big trouble. And that, that day on 1662, that day that goes down in infamy, which really changes the course of, of, of England's history all the way through, that particular day led to the monumental and, and tragic, or that particular day uh, led, let's see, it led to what happened in August 24th of 1662. So when they passed that act, just a little bit after that, something else happened. And we call that the Great Ejection. On that day, 2,000 Puritan pastors were stripped of their ordination and permanently thrown out of Anglican churches. So that's the story of how the Puritans came about. They were a group of faithful biblical men who saw problems in the Anglican church and called it to repent and to reform, just as Luther had done with the Roman Catholic Church a hundred years earlier. And rather than repenting and reforming, the church persecuted them, labeled them, killed many of them. Think of men like Thomas Boston and Flavel. They were all Puritans. And toward the, the end, now we rewind, toward the end of the Apostle John's life, many churches were already in serious trouble. And we're talking in the, the 90s AD. Churches that had been planted years before were already in big, big trouble, especially the churches throughout Asia Minor. Persecution had led some of these churches to compromise the truth. Uh, the influence of false teachers who had infiltrated the truth, that caused some of these churches to engage in non-biblical, sinful behavior. 
But none of what was going on then escaped the eyes of the Lord Jesus. Just as what was happening in the Roman Catholic Church and within the Anglican churches, none of that escaped His eyes. But when we rewind back, we see the Lord Jesus here responding what was happening in the churches throughout Asia Minor. We must understand that that Jesus actually watches His church. That Jesus actually stands in the midst of His church. And when trouble arises in the church, Jesus doesn't sit back. Jesus doesn't remain inactive. He takes action. And He addresses the trouble with His Word. And I'll tell you what, nowhere is this fact made more clear than in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, we see the Lord Jesus issue strong warnings to seven churches throughout Asia Minor. He calls each one, with the exception of Smyrna, to repent and reform before it's too late. You might say that before Luther and before the Puritans, before the ecumenical councils of the early church, before any of those bodies of believers or bishops, before Luther, before the Puritans called the church to repent and reform, Jesus himself was doing that. And I'm excited to announce that we're going to start a new series today where we will study these chapters in the book of Revelation. We're going to look at them in depth. And the goal will be to learn from these churches. They're Good and bad examples. Obviously, our goal will be to obey the Lord's instructions. Why? So that we can become the church that He wants us to be. You might be thinking, well, is the Reformation still going? Yes, as long as we have Revelation 1, 2, and 3, and Jesus hasn't returned yet, the Reformation is still going. And as a church, just like those seven, just like the other churches I mentioned, We need to be repentant. We need to be reforming. There are areas in this church that we need to address. The Lord intends to address them. And so that's what this series is going to be about. Don't know how long it'll be. I planned for eight weeks, but that already got screwed up, so we'll see what happens. I've actually entitled this series, Seven Churches, A Call to Repentance and Reformation. That's what it'll be called. And this morning, we're going to look at part one, prologue and greeting Take your Bibles and turn over to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. Uh, This text is amazing. It just begins with the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that He saw. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So this is the prologue. John begins by describing what his book is. He says, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you think of the book of Revelation, think of the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what this is. And the Greek word for revelation is apocalypses. Apocalypses, what word do we get from that? What sounds like apocalypses? Apocalypse, precisely. You guys are scholars. And what does this word mean in the Greek? It means to uncover. It means to reveal. Uh, you might say that the book of Revelation is the revealing of Jesus Christ. Now, A lot of people are confused by the book of Revelation. They view it as mysterious, and I think it is to a degree. They view it as bizarre, and I don't agree that it's bizarre at all. And many, believe it or not, think it's indecipherable. Like it cannot be understood. Well, if it it cannot be understood, then why is it called a revealing That's what the book is called. It is a revealing. It is an uncovering, which which means that God intends for His people to understand what has been written. So it's not indecipherable. It is not hidden from His people. It is a revelation to His people. I want you to think of the book of Revelation as revealment, not concealment. 
So when people tell you, oh, you can't understand that, maybe you can't, and maybe there's a reason for that, but it's intended to be understood. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ, right? Not just a revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not the revelations of Jesus Christ, and I hear people call it revelations all the time. It is a singular, multifaceted revelation. There is not more than one revelation here, so we don't want to pluralize it. It is revelation. And since it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, that means that it intends to reveal things about Him. What does it reveal about Him? Well, I'll tell you what, there's just too many things to list here. It reveals so much about Him. But I think primarily what the book intends to reveal about Him is His divine majesty and glory. Think of it like this. The Gospels reveal Jesus' humiliation. Revelation reveals His exaltation. And this revelation about Jesus Christ was given to Jesus Christ by God the Father. It says it in the text. It was given to him as a gift, not because he needed information or knowledge, for Jesus knows all things, but as a reward for his perfect, humble, faithful service. And Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 illustrate this. MacArthur wrote, The first token of the Father's pleasure with the obedient Son was His resurrection. The second was His ascension. The third was the sending of the Holy Spirit. And the last was the gift of the book of Revelation, which promises and reveals the glory that will be Christ's at His second coming. That's a great statement. To further exalt and glorify His Son, the Father has graciously granted to a special group of people the privilege of understanding the truths in this book. John calls them servants in the middle of verse 1. The Greek word for servants is doulos. A doulos is a slave or a bondservant who serves their master out of love and devotion. All true believers are doulos, or bondservants. So they are the ones who receive from the Father the privilege of understanding the prophetic truths in this book, Revelation. The privilege is given to this special group, to believers, and to this special group alone. And this is why unbelievers find the book of Revelation totally chaotic and confusing. I've conversed with people who aren't in the faith who call it just a ridiculous mess and it can't be understood. Well, these people fail to understand that the book of Revelation, like every book in Scripture, is to be spiritually discerned through the Holy Spirit. And without the Holy Spirit, you're not going to understand even the most simple truths, especially Revelation. You remember what Jesus told His disciples in Matthew 13, 11? I don't know if you remember this. He said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Notice the phrase with me. It says, must soon take place. The Greek root word for soon is takos, and it usually refers to a brief time span. The idea is that the prophetic events of this revelation, like the second coming of Christ, are imminent and near. That's what tacos means here. It means that what is to take place is imminent and near. Now this should motivate us not to set up timelines which try to determine when these things will actually happen. Instead, we are to patiently wait and be ready by living holy, obedient lives. 2 Peter 3.14 that's how we respond to the proximity or soonness. Believers who invest their time, talent, and treasure into trying to determine the exact times of these things are disobeying the clear teachings of Scripture, and they're being bad stewards, not investing where you should. Now, at the end of verse 1, John tells us that he received this revelation from an angel that had been sent to him. Jesus affirmed this truth over in chapter 22, verse 16a, where he declared, I, Jesus, 
have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. And that's another interesting point. The book of Revelation was written to seven churches and by default to the entire church. Now, the fact that this revelation came through an angel to John makes the book of Revelation extraordinarily unique in the New Testament because it is the only book that has been communicated to a human author through an angel. John tells us that he is the one who bore witness to this revelation, to what he heard and saw. This is interesting because throughout his entire gospel, he never identifies himself by name. And yet here, within the first paragraph, he identifies himself by name. In the gospel of John, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. But here he just says, John. John tells us that there is a promised blessing that comes to those who read, hear, and obey the words of this prophecy. Notice the three words, those who read, hear, and obey. The book of Revelation is literally bracketed by this promise of blessing. We see it here in verse 3, and then we also see it toward the end of the book in chapter 22, verse 7. It's the exact same blessing. Those who read, those who hear, those who obey will be blessed. What is this promised blessing? It is the blessing of makarios. That's the Greek word for it. What does it mean? It means happiness. Now we move to 4 and 5a. Verse 4 says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So this is the greeting. John begins by identifying whom he's writing to. Seven churches that are in Asia. And they were located along a circular trade route that brought together the most populous and influential parts of this Roman province. In the first century, it was called Asia Minor. Today, it's Turkey. Scholars suggest that the Apostle Paul had planted all of these churches during his second and third missions trips. I find difficulty with this. The reason why is because Paul never visited Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, or Laodicea during those missions trips. If he didn't visit those cities, how could he plant churches in those cities? My theory is this, that one church planted the rest of those churches. And that church is a church that Paul did plant on his second missionary journey, and that's the church of Ephesus. It must have been a pretty significant church to be able to plant all these churches, right? I mean, we think in our context, it costs a small fortune to plant a church. You got to get a building, you got to have power, you got to have electricity, you got to have all that. It costs a lot of money to plant a church in our day and age. But back then, churches gathered in homes. Churches gathered in pre-existing synagogues. The only thing that you had to do to plant a church in the first century was have some elders or an elder who could preach and send them into that area with a handful of believers and start a church. Didn't cost a whole lot. So it wouldn't have been difficult for Ephesus to do this. So that means that Paul did plant all of these churches indirectly, didn't he? After identifying his audience, John uses the standard greeting in the New Testament letters, grace to you and peace. But he adds a, a benediction from the Godhead or Trinity. He says, from him who is and who was and who is to come. That refers to God the Father from the seven spirits who are before His throne. This does not refer to seven actual spirits who are around the throne. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit. I like what John Gill wrote. These seven spirits are the Holy Spirit of God who is one in His person, but His gifts and His graces are various, and therefore He is signified by this number because of the fullness and perfection of them, and with respect to the seven churches over whom he presideth, whom he influences and sanctified, filled and enriched with his gifts and graces. And then lastly, who does John point to? God the Son. He just names him, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, but John mentions him last here. Usually we say Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Well, the way John does it here is... Father, Spirit, Son. Why? Well, he 
mentions the second person of the Trinity last because this book is entirely about Him. Everything that's to be said from this point forward is about Jesus. And so he ends with Jesus so that he can talk about Jesus the whole time. That's why he did it. In verse 5a, John describes Jesus Christ as what? The faithful witness. When Jesus came, he faithfully witnessed to the truth, right? John 18, 37. He witnessed to the will of the Father, John 6, 38. He witnessed to the nature of God, right? If you've seen the Father, you've seen me, John 14, 9. He witnessed to everything else he was commanded to witness to. And he did all of this perfectly and faithfully. He is the faithful witness who even sent the angel to make his revelation known to John so that he could record it and pass it along to the seven churches. So, Jesus is the faithful witness, which means we can trust His witnessing. Secondly, He is the firstborn of the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, He experienced actual resurrection. Every other person in Scripture who was raised from the dead, think of the Shunammite's son, Jairus' daughter, Lazarus, Tabitha, Eutychus, all of these people who were raised by prophets and, and the apostles and by Jesus, all of these people were not resurrected. They were resuscitated. They were brought back to life, and later in life, they died again. But Jesus, when He rose, He did not rise in the same fashion that these others were raised. He was resurrected unto immortality, to never die again. He was given a glorified body. He is the first person to be resurrected. And that is why He is the firstborn of the dead. And thirdly, He is the ruler of the kings on earth. Jesus Christ is the sovereign King of kings over the affairs of this world and all creation. Earthly kings receive their crowns ruling kingdoms from Him. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. And all of these kings throughout all of time are accountable to Him, whether they recognize it or not. We don't want to think of Jesus as a king who is coming to reign. This is a mistake. He is a king who reigns. He reigns now and He reigns forever is what Scripture teaches. In fact, Jeremiah 10.10 calls Him the everlasting king. And we must understand that His kingdom has no end. Psalm 145, verse 13. And that's another thing, another mistake we make. We tend to think that His kingdom will begin when He returns. No, His kingdom is in place now. It will be made thoroughly visible when He returns, but it is visible in a sense every time you look upon a true believer. So He is a king who reigns, and He has a kingdom that is everlasting, and His kingdom has no end. Which means that if you're, a, if you're a, a premillennialist, do not think of the millennial kingdom ending. It doesn't technically end because that would mean the end of Jesus' reign and kingdom. His kingdom will continue on and on and on. He will always be the king of the kingdom. Always. And I'm not rejecting the thousand-year reign of Him. But don't ever limit it to that. He reigns now and He reigns after the thousand years. Know that. It's a mistake to limit Him to that thousand years. A lot of dispensationalists do that. That's a mistake. He's a king right now. Think about the context that John is building for this correction. He's establishing who Jesus is. This is necessary to do this. They'll be much more likely to obey and do what they're supposed to do once they understand who Jesus is. I would be. Now we move to 5b and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know what this is? This is a doxology. Do you know what a doxology is? A doxology is an expression of praise to God like a short hymn. In fact, I think that John intended for 5b through 6 to be sang. This is a short song. I'm not going to sing it for you. Maybe we'll have Lily come up and do it. 
But this is a doxology. It's like a song. It's like a hymn. What's your favorite doxological hymn? Mine is Praise God, From Whom All Blessings Flow. Don't you love that one? I love that doxology. That's a great doxological hymn. It was written in 1674 by Thomas Ken. The first verse gives praise to Jesus for loving us and for freeing us from the penalty of sin through the blood he shed on the cross. You know what that statement is in 5b? That's the gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus died on the cross to free us from the penalty and wage of sin, right? Now, we would add he was buried and rose to complete the gospel, but this is definitely part of it. The second verse praises Jesus for bringing us into his kingdom or for literally making his people into a kingdom and for making these people in his kingdom priests unto his God and Father. What a a marvelous praise John lists here. Every believer is a priest. We belong to a royal priesthood, right? 1 Peter 2, 9. Under the old covenant, the priests are the ones who had access to God, especially the high priest. But under the new covenant, every believer has access to God because every believer is a priest. We are a kingdom, a royal kingdom of priests and priestesses. How cool is that? That's who we are. He's praising Jesus for making us this, singing it to him. And then John ends his little doxology with, A totally fitting statement. To Jesus be glory and dominion, rule and reign forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, is this not our purpose in life? To Jesus be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That is it. Verses 7 and 8. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. And then verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is a, a preview of the second coming of Jesus Christ. He is coming with the clouds, it says. Some people imagine Jesus just kind of peeking or poking through the, you know, vapor clouds that we have in the sky. That is totally not the meaning. That that is not the right way to look at clouds here. These are not vapor clouds. These are not the kinds of clouds that dot our sky or blanket it at times. But before we talk about that, I want to talk about the present tense of the Greek verb. Uh, It's uh, erkomai. It's the phrase, is coming. You know what that suggests? It's present tense. It suggests that Jesus is already on his way. He's already on his way. Or that his return is absolutely certain. It's imminent. Let me tell you, if you read this in a letter and then on the next page you read about a correction, are you not more motivated to correct what needs to be corrected knowing that Jesus is on his way? Think about what John is doing here. He's given them plenty of reason to repent and reform. Jesus is the king who rules and has dominion. He's on his way. You better get with it, people. Now, this is very, very interesting. The second coming of Jesus Christ appears in more than 500 verses throughout your Bibles. And people say he's not coming back. I don't believe he's coming back, really. Five hundred verses. Someone once estimated that one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament refers to his second coming. One in 25. Jesus himself spoke of his second coming repeatedly, over and over. I don't have time to list all the verses. Here's a couple. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Wow. Mark 8.38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. He even warned believers to be ready for his return. 
He didn't just announce, I'm coming. He told people, I'm coming and be ready for it. Matthew 24, 44, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. When Jesus comes, He will come with the clouds. These are not normal clouds, as I said. It might be the clouds that were typically, or the cloud that was typically seen when God manifested His presence on earth. Under the Old Covenant, the Shekinah glory. How many of you are familiar with that term, Shekinah glory? Could be that that's what's being talked about here. When the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, God was there in a cloud of smoke during the day and a cloud of fire during the night, right? Exodus 13, 21 and 22. When the law was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, God was there in a thick cloud that fell upon the mountain. Exodus 19, 16, chapter 20, verse 21 when Jesus ascended into heaven, what does it say in Acts 1.9? He was taken up in a cloud. Could be the Shekinah glory, which was a visible expression of God's presence in those days. It could be that. We don't know for sure. Some scholars say that the clouds are neither vapor nor Shekinah, but swarms of angels around the Lord when He comes back. Because as you just heard from Jesus himself, when he returns, he comes with the holy angels. I mean, he's coming to make war. And I think of that imagery in my mind. It reminds me of Exodus 10, 14, when you have the swarms of locusts descend upon Egypt and devour everything. In fact, that scripture says there'd never been anything like that in the history of the world prior to that. So they say these are not literally clouds, these are... It looks like a cloud, but it's all of the angels that are coming with Jesus. Could be that. Could be Shekinah. Could be the angels. We don't know for sure. John tells us that when Jesus comes with the clouds, every eye will see him. The Lord Jesus will perform a miracle, thus enabling everyone to see him when he returns, even those who are in other hemispheres or on the other side of the world. They will see him. Every eye will become fixed on the King of Kings as He descends from heaven in glory with His mighty angels. Many missed His first coming, but nobody will miss His second coming. Two groups are quickly described in the second half of verse 7. The first group is those who pierced Him. John was not pointing to the Roman soldiers who nailed Jesus to a cross here. He was pointing to the unbelieving Jews who instigated Jesus' death. Annas, Caiaphas, the other unbelieving members of the Sanhedrin, all of the Jewish leadership that was involved in his crucifixion. That's who he's referring to. And I think in a way he's referring to all of apostate unbelieving Israel in a way. But that's made more clear in the next line. Now here's a question that came to my mind. The people that are mentioned here, those who pierced them, they've been dead for 2,000 years. They've been dead and buried and gone. How are they going to see Jesus when he returns, when they're dead and buried? Well, if you're a premillennialist, then you would say right now their spirits, their souls are in Hades or in Sheol, and they will be able to witness it from that location. Because there is a kind of seeing that can take place there, because we see that with Dives and Lazarus in Luke 16. But if you're an amillennialist, then you would say that at the point that Jesus comes back, there's a resurrection that takes place, and all of the dead will be able to see him. So you would argue that. Now, which view is right? I always like to think my view is right, which would be premillennial, but I'm not convinced that it is, and I'm not convinced of the amillennial view. So which view is right? I have no idea. But I do know one thing. Every eye will see him. That's the truth. How it works, I don't know. Premillennial. And not only will those who pierced him see him, but all the tribes of the earth will see him, it says. I believe was John was literally pointing to everyone on earth, Jew and Gentile alike. When all people look to the sky and see Jesus coming with the clouds, they will wail on account of him. That means weep. That means mourn profusely. Jews will wail because at that point, God is going to pour out his grace on them and they will realize that Jesus is and always has been their Messiah. Zechariah 12.10. It's a prophecy that deals with the second coming of Christ. Many Jews, because of God's grace, at that moment 
will exhibit genuine repentance. And Gentile nations will wail. But I don't believe it's because of grace and repentance. I believe it's because of terror. They will mourn not for the Christ they rejected, but over their doom. And there is a third group that exists, but it's not mentioned here. And that would be believers. Why aren't they mentioned? Well, first of all, I don't think they're on earth at that time because I believe they've been taken up and away. I do believe in the rapture. I don't believe it's secret. I don't know why people say that. There's a secret rapture that will take place. Actually, there's a big trumpet that's blown and an angel that sounds and it's going to be known. So they're not part of these two categories. They're actually with Jesus when He returns. The rapture happens prior to this 1 Thessalonians 4.17. They will be with Jesus and the angels when He returns. Zechariah 14.5. He comes with His people and the angels. And guess what? Believers will not be like these two other categories. They will not be wailing. They will be rejoicing. Psalm 58.10. Lastly, in verse 8, Jesus puts His signature or stamp of approval on this prophecy in verse 7, or really on the entire revelation that exists before us. It was as if the Lord was saying, I, the Alpha and the Omega, that's all-knowing, who is and who was and who is to come, that's eternal, Almighty Lord God, that means all-powerful, I approve this message. I approve of what John has just stated in the previous text about my return and about people wailing and mourning and weeping and all of that. And I approve of everything that's said from this point forward about me. That's how you should view verse 8. And that's the end of the text that we have for today. But I'd like to close with some, a few things here. The one thing that I would like to just plainly state is so factual according to this text, and five, you know, 499 other verses in the Bible. And that's the fact that Jesus is going to return. Jesus is coming. And my question to you is, are we ready for this? And I think that the majority of believers would say, yes, I am. Why? Because I'm a believer. Being a believer doesn't constitute readiness. Just because you're a believer doesn't mean you're ready for the return of Jesus. Oh, yes, it does, because I believe in Him. No, it doesn't. There is the difference between being a believer and being a ready believer. The cry of command could be given at any moment. The archangel is ready to give it. The trumpet could be pressed against the lips of the trumpeter right now. And I say, look around you. If you don't believe me, if you don't believe that He could come at any moment, even today, Look around you. Do you not see what is happening in the world? You'd have to be obtuse not to be able to recognize the signs. False messiahs are everywhere. Every time I look, a new guru pops up. False messiahs, Jesus said, there will be many before I come. Are nations not rising up against nations all the time? For crying out loud, this nation rises up against nations once a week. Nations will rise against nations. Kingdoms will rise against kingdoms. Do we not see this? Famines will be on the earth. Parts of Africa have been in a perpetual famine for hundreds of years. Earthquakes will be on the earth. Did we just not have a series of them here? Persecution of Christians will be on the rise. It is on the rise. In some countries, you're put to death, or at least incarcerated, for being a Christian. And we see persecution on the rise here, do we not? Most of it's verbal. And I think it's going to become hellish in America. I do. It might reach the level of the Sudan in 10 years, 20 years, maybe 30 years. Who knows? What about this sign People are falling away and leaving churches in droves. Joshua Harris, famous Christian writer, just denounced his faith. Marty Sampson, songwriter for Hillsong, denounces his faith. And that's just two guys. Every day, people 
walk away from Jesus and walk away from churches every day. Christianity is quickly becoming, if not already, the most unpopular, ugly religion in America. It's happening now. I never thought I'd see it in my day, but it's happening now. And if people don't hate you for being a Christian, there's something wrong with your Christianity. You probably have the world's version of it. So I bet half the people that were down there protesting against the straight pride march who were on the LGBT side, I bet 90% of them claim to be Christians. And I bet almost 100% of the other ones claim to be Christians, but I don't know why Christians would be out there marching in favor of their heterosexuality. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. We're to boast in Christ alone. New false prophets appear on almost a daily basis. The charismatic movement cranks them out faster than Trump tweets. Are not people being led astray by false teaching? It's happening everywhere. How about lawlessness? Because the scripture says in the end toward when Jesus comes back, lawlessness will be very popular. Are we not seeing that today at our southern border? In Portland? Everywhere? Every day, five or six police officers are killed in the line of duty. Lawlessness is rampant today. This is becoming very quickly a nation of anarchy. Are people not less loving today and more critical, hateful, and violent? People today have become as violent as they were right before the flood, if not more violent. The world was flooded because of a sin like that, violence. And today, violence is everywhere. It's in everything. It's in our video games. It's in our movies. You can't have a movie without violence today. You can't have a movie without sex. How about... People are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And some have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. That's scripture foretelling what it'll be like just before Jesus comes. All of these things will be present when Jesus comes. And, and because all of those things are present, that tells me that Jesus could come at any moment. Are we ready for this? Well, I'm a believer. I'm ready. You sure? I'll tell you what, if you're not a believer, you're not ready at all. Not in any kind of capacity. If you're not a believer, you're not ready. That's for sure. The first step would be to repent of your unbelief. Put your trust in Jesus alone for salvation. You don't want to be outside of Christ when He returns. You will be one who weeps and wails and who mourns because of your doom. Believe that Jesus lived for your righteousness, died to pay for your sins, was buried, rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell. You believe in Him. You do this, you'll be saved. You live your life in submission to His will. You seek to glorify Him in all you do, and you'll be ready for His return. But if you remain in unrepentant unbelief and He returns, you will wail because of terror and doom. If you remain unrepentant in unbelief and you die, you will be cast into hell. You will be cast into Sheol to await judgment. I don't think anyone in this room would want that for you. And if you're a believer, again, don't think that you're ready just because you're a believer. If your behavior doesn't currently align with God's will, you're not ready for His return. You need to repent and reform. You need to follow the instructions that we're going to look at as we analyze these churches. You need to repent. You need to reform. You need to turn away from those behaviors, those sinful behaviors, whether you're looking at stuff on the computer or whatever it is that you're doing. You need to stop. You need to submit to Christ, and you need to seek God's will. The way to be ready for the return of Christ is to live in the will of Christ, to obey His will and to seek to bring Him glory. That's the only way to be ready. Just because you're a believer doesn't mean you're ready. You've got to be in His will. And yet, if you do not repent and turn away from whatever 
sinful behavior you're in, involved in, it's not that the Lord Jesus will not take you when He comes. Because your salvation is not based on what you do. He will still take you. But how embarrassing to be found doing foolish, stupid, sinful things at His return. And you must remember that you are going to give an account before Christ for how you lived your life as a believer. That is imminent. That is coming. You can never lose your salvation. That's, that's hidden away in Christ. But you can lose your reward, whatever that may be. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Believers still have to go through a kind of judgment. It's not one that leads to hell, but it leads to reward or not. All of us together need to be ready for the return of Jesus. And the only way to do that is firstly to be in Christ, secondly to be in His will. You know, it reminds me of a good parent leaving his children at home and saying, now you know how you're to behave when I'm not here, but know that I am coming back. And I'll tell you what, what usually happens, those kids do things they're not supposed to do. In my case, I used to throw parties. And when that parent pulls into the driveway, if you weren't doing what you were supposed to be doing, what would you do? You would scramble to get everything together. We don't want to be those kinds of Christians. We don't need to scramble to get things together. Let's obey Christ. He has left us here, not alone. We have the Holy Spirit. He has given us His will in His Word to live a certain way until He returns or until we go to be with Him like a good parent. Let's live our lives the way that we're supposed to live it. We're to be good stewards here. We're to be serving. There's things that we do. We don't sit around like couch potatoes. Our parent didn't tell us to sit around and play video games. Our parent told us to spread the gospel. Amen? Amen. Lord, thanks for our time together. Thanks for your word. I'm looking forward to this series. And um, just as you further unpack the scripture for us and for me, I pray that you make things even clearer. And uh, Lord, every believer is to be about semper reformanda, always reforming, always changing, always being sanctified. And so I pray that um, you would help us to get a hold of our lives and to confess and repent of the things that need to go. Like with me, I think sometimes of the things that I think and say, those things need to go. And I pray that you help each one of us, reform us with your word through the Spirit. Help us to be kingdom-minded. Help us to begin today to be ready. We love you and pray in Christ's name. Amen.